the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back. As we head into Hour 2, it is a delight to bring back to the show John Hinderocker of the Powerline blog, powerlineblog.com. John is uh, one of the smartest uh, commentators, uh, political minds, and uh, commentators in the country, and uh, sometimes even guest hosts this show. John, uh, Happy New Year. Thanks for being with us. I think the last time you and I talked, you were guest hosting the Dennis Prager show, and you had me on as a guest. So it's nice <laughs> to be in touch again. I think you may be right, Seth. Do you prefer? Do you, do you, what show. side of the mic do you prefer being on as the host or the guest? I always prefer the actually guesting, but uh, being oh, the guest. Oh, I prefer to be a guest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's easier <laughs> to answer, isn't it? <laughs> being a host is work, as you know, Seth. Yeah, yeah, man, yeah. That's, no, that's no problem Any- at all. <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about two things, um, the World Economic Forum and just your thoughts on that. But also you did a great thing on education uh, and particularly uh, the lefty takeover of education. I'll get to that with you in a moment. Um, everybody wants to rule the world. The thing that has struck me most about the goings on at the World Economic Forum is not the superciliousness and it's not the over the top statements about uh, boiling oceans that we hear from our former vice president. The thing I was just remarking on, John, you've put together conservative conferences. You had a conservative think tank. There is zero debate. There are no forums or panels of any kind where anyone disagrees with anyone on anything i just find that a little bit i've never put on a conference where we didn't have at least one debate you don't have to i mean i'm 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 sure you don't you know how the federalist society does it you know how we've done it the claremont institute and stuff but isn't that kind of odd such a big forum like this not one single dissent not any panel where there's a back and forth or debate about any of this stuff you know, it's really interesting, Seth. Uh, you know, I, I, I used to not take Davos very seriously, right. but I've decided I was wrong. It's yeah. a serious threat. Yeah. I, in one of my posts on Powerline, I, I, I quoted them. There's 30 heads of state, 56 finance ministers, 19 central bank governors, 39 heads of global organizations. Mm-hmm. It goes on and on. And and on paper, this is a very diverse group of people, right? They come from all the continents and all these different country, countries and different you know different walks of life, and they are uh, unanimous. They are of one mind. There is no dissent, and it's really interesting. You know, this this, this set of global elites they recognize their commu- their communal interests, yeah, right? right? And and they are all on the same team. And, and you know who's on the other team? Capitalists, we are regular Americans, the we kind are. of people you, that shouldn't be having me, children. Our listeners, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. no, regular people in France and yeah. regular people in uh, Nigeria and Australia, you name it. Um, you know, these people ha- have figured out, I think, that they have got common interests that are absolutely overwhelming, and they do want to rule the world. Mm-hmm. And frankly, they're making pretty good progress. It's um. 
It's it's interesting to think about some of the things that they say. I, you, you know the work of Bjorn Lumberg, I'm sure, or at least of it. Mm-hmm, and sure. uh, he was making an interesting point. I was talking about this with the audience earlier. He said, yeah, there's the asterisks here and there. Like you'll hear AOC, who's not a scientist, talk about we have 12 years. But one of the things Lumberg said, notice if you listen carefully to these, the real experts at places like this, is they prognosticate, they forecast way into the future, decades into the future, um, for two reasons. One, who can question it? Who the hell knows what's going to be in 2080? So who's going to say they're wrong? But also no accountability. It's kind of interesting. It's kind of interesting insight. They don't they don't talk about next year or the year later. Um, Al well, Gore's talking about things that just don't exist. But Except they've learned their lesson. Yeah, I mean, you it. know, many people have compiled lists of failed predictions yeah. by the left. I mean, you know, at one point we were all supposed to be under, you know, a half mile of ice yep. by this time yep. due to global cooling. And, right. and then a few years later, the oceans are supposed to be boiling by this time due to global warming. And their predictions keep not coming true. So I think as a matter of self-defense, yeah. they've, they've said, well, let's not predict what's going to happen in three years right. or five years. Let's predict what's going to happen at the end of the century in, in 78 years, because we're not going to be around right. to pay the price right. if and when we're wrong. The, the other thing that's going on here, Seth, I believe, is that it is, these people are running out of time. You know, for them, it's a race against time. They got to get the money and they got to get the power and, and they got to totally transform our economy. And by that, I mean the world's economy, not just the U.S. economy, before it becomes blindingly obvious that they're, that they're wrong about global warming. And it's already obvious. I mean, we now have good satellite data going back to, what, 1979. So that's about, what, 43 years worth of data. And the data conclusively show that the models that forecast doom are just plain wrong. They they overestimate over that 43-year period, I think it is, they overestimate the extent of warming by about 3x, mm-hmm. about three times, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So we know for a fact that these models are wrong. And when people like John Kerry go on, you know, bleeding about the coming disasters mm-hmm. and the need, as he put it a day or two ago, to spend money, 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 right. money, money, and there's another key to what's happening yes, here. Yes. You know, I think what's driving them is 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 the knowledge that um, time is running out. That before more we more all people... find out. Before we all find out. Because, right. I mean, right. if you connect the dots, right. as you were doing in uh, your Everybody Wants to Rule the World post, you kind of link it to why the hell do they have a panel on, uh, on, on curbing speech? Well, now we know why, right? Right. The well, European that, yeah. Commission, Vice President Verger, of, uh, however you say your name, Jerova, I hope I'm saying it right, is there, with Brian Stelter is going after speech. Yeah. Yeah. And she says illegal hate speech. Right. And she says, which you will soon have, which you uh, will have soon also, a little yeah. clumsy English there. Yeah. But she's saying that we in America soon will also have illegal hate speech. Right. And she says, I think that we have a strong reason why we have this in the criminal law. And it's really interesting because Brian Stelter from CNN is, is hosting this panel, yeah. if you can believe that, by the way. Right, right. But another member of this panel is the head of the New York Times, That's the right. current uh, Salzburger, right. who, who's in charge of the New York. I, and I have not seen a report right. on, on what uh, Mr. CNN and Mr. New York Times had to say about the idea that pretty soon hate speech is going to be illegal in the United States. We'll go back to rule one of this conversation, no dissent, no debate. 
you know, uh, that, 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 that they, they're not – I mean, see, I think – I think you think the New York Times and CNN thinks that hate speech only comes from one direction and that it is not legitimate speech. And, they, and what they do is they, they, they take what is normally political speech that would have passed every test since Brandenburg and create the new category that's extremist and a threat to democracy as we saw the Democrats use as a campaign theme last year, don't you? Isn't that kind of what they're going at when they talk hate speech? They think we shouldn't exist. Well, that's exactly right. And, and they're confident that they are going to be the ones who will define what hate of speech course. is. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure they're right about that because you and I say, well, look, hate speech, forget about it. <laughs> you know, just a couple of years ago, the United States Supreme Court ruled nine to nothing that there is no hate speech exception to the First Amendment. Right. Hate speech as such right. is constitutionally protected. That is firmly embedded in our laws. But, you know, I'm not so sure. This is a senior official at the European uh, Union. I'm not so sure that she's wrong when she says that hate speech will soon be illegal in the United I'm States. I'm not sure she's wrong the, either. The Democratic Party is not in favor of free speech. And I'm worried about what they con- consider and constitute hate speech. I mean, that's really the question. It's it's probably not what most people think of as hate speech uh, these days. It's probably not uh, uh, I don't know, what, what would you say, BLM well, I think, I think or, or white it, nationalist? I think it's going to be something. Idea, yeah, go ahead. Seth, we've got a pretty good idea of what they want to censor yeah, because exactly. it's what they have been <laughs> That's censoring right. That's with right. the aid of the FBI That's on right. social media. That's right. And one of the things they want to censor is misinformation about climate. As, that's exactly right. Censor that's misinformation right. about COVID, which, right. by the way, almost all of which turned out to be right. It turned out to be you information. Know, yeah. yeah. Even Leanna Wen has come around, right? Sure. Yeah. And, 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 and you can go on the list of, of topics. We know what they want to censor. Well, I, and, and, and they're secure in the, in the belief that we don't want to censor anything. Parents <laughs> showing up at school board <laughs> meetings to protest transgender curricula and critical race theory. That's what they want to send police sure. after John, right? Sure. No more parents showing up at school board exactly. meetings. You know, you you might get investigated by the FBI, yep. and, and who knows? You know, yep. uh, in 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 the European Union, hate speech is actually a crime, and yep. we have this absurd spectacle yep. in the UK. You know, of the of the police force yep. tracking down authors of social media posts and putting them under arrest because they've. They've, you know, crossed some kind of, of, of line in terms of, you know, the, 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 whatever they've said on social media. And, and that is the kind of thing I think that the Democratic Party wants to bring to the United States. We are, we are lucky, Seth. Yep. We are lucky yep. that at the moment six of nine Supreme Court justices have been appointed by Republicans. Exactly but right. Let, let me take you, the quick commercial. Let me take a quick commercial break and let's pick up on that and then move to the leftists in teaching because that's a nice segue to it too, John, if that's good. okay. Yeah, we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson show. The leftists uh, in the 60s, John, said that we'll get you through your children. It might be their grandchildren or your children or grandchildren, John. But you had this um, really important post, only leftists can teach what's taking place in Minnesota, but I believe taking place in a lot of other precincts as well. Um, I I don't know if you know or have uh, spoken with, uh, read the book by Daniel Buck about what's wrong with education. He puts it, um, he puts it on the teacher education uh, certification programs and the master's degree curricula um, and the propaganda that uh, teachers go into the workforce trained in. 
kind of a neo-Marxist, uh, Paulo Ferrer kind of view of um, education. And you point out that in Minnesota, the effort is going to be right there, square and black and white, that to get uh, teacher certification in Minnesota, you have to sign off on theories of power, privilege, intersectionality, and systemic oppression. Tell us what's going on here, brother. Yeah, so this is part of the left. Uh, well, as everybody knows, they've already taken over the public schools, but they're they're ratcheting it up. So there's an obscure agency in Minnesota, I can't even give you the acronym offhand, that is responsible for teacher licensing. Mm-hmm. Now, this has never been a big deal in the past. Right. You know, you have whatever those basic standards are to be a teacher. But but that, that group is appointed by our far-left governor, and so it's a far-left agency. And so this is the kind of a thing that no legislature would probably pass. But nobody runs for governor saying, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to demand that all teachers be social justice activists. They don't run on that platform, but then they, they appoint the far-left people to these agencies that implement that platform. And so what's happened is that this, this agency has put out proposed new rules, which it looks like are going to go into effect in July, despite my organization's best efforts, that add requirements for teacher licensing. So you won't be able to be a teacher in Minnesota in either public schools or private schools unless you at least profess to believe the the essentials of the critical race theory and LGBTQ plus dogma, and in addition to that, undertake to teach your students to be social justice warriors. And it's really shocking. You know, it's right here in the rules, and, and it says that you have to um, demonstrate the ability to create opportunities for students to learn about power, privilege, intersectionality, and systemic oppression in the context of various communities. We all know what that means. Mm -hmm. That's the entire litany of leftist dogma. Mm -hmm. And it concludes, and empowers learners to be agents of social change to promote equity. Yeah. So you don't go to school anymore to learn how to read, to write, to multiply, to divide. You go to school to learn to be an agent of social change to promote equity. And again, our listeners all understand that the word equity doesn't mean anything like what you, know, what you and I think of as equity, right. certainly not equality. Right. Equity is, is a word that they use to just import this entire left-wing agenda. I, this word equity is so suffused. I was interviewed by someone who was doing a profile on me for some magazine or some such, and we got into what my views of conservatism were and that sort of thing, and I ended with a quote from the Declaration of Independence said at the end of the day, it's about, you know, the proper understanding of liberty and equality. When the interview came out, Seth Liebson says at the end of the day, it's about liberty and equity. And I just I said, you have got to change this. You have, But that's how that's how suffused it is. They don't even realize that that's that a they don't realize what, what I'm quoting from. That's its own problem. But that's how big a deal this equity word has uh, become so quickly in our culture. It's funny enough. There's a reporter that really didn't know that a conservative would not use right. The word equity. Right. 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 Maybe that's why you wanted to interview me. Oh, here's a conservative that supports equity. But you take the point that it has totally replaced the notion of equality. Um, but, you know, what's interesting to me about this, too, John, is this isn't this isn't anything but a great explanation 
for why they were so mad at Ron DeSantis uh, with his legislation in Florida that was keeping these kinds of conversations from kindergartners through third graders. You remember the whole thing where they labeled it the don't say gay bill, which it wasn't. It was about, you know, sexualization and sexually themed topics in K through three education. And this is what they got so upset about. This is how how else are they going to make edu- agents of social change to promote equity in the t- student population if you have governors like DeSantis stopping it, right? Yeah, you can't start grooming them until right. they're nine. Right. You know, what an outrage. Yeah. Yeah. And sending them out because, I, you know, I, I was quoting this. Um, I was quoting this. Not many people in the audience would, nor should they know the name Paulo Ferrer, but he is – he is a neo-Marxist. He was a neo-Marxist education scholar that has, um, that has, you know, spent that whose book was about telling teachers how to use children and students to do exactly this. The purpose of teaching is not reading, writing, and arithmetic. The purpose of teaching is to create social change, or what he called education as a subversive activity. That's what we're seeing here. It is coming to full force right now. This book from 1969 is now in full play in places like Minnesota and others. Yeah, I think most parents have no idea how deep the rot has gone. And I think most parents, and and frankly, not just conservative parents. You know, we've done polling on this in Minnesota. People think Minnesota is a liberal state, but our polling doesn't tend to doesn't tend to support that. But if you ask parents or, or citizens generally. What do you think is the mission of the public schools? What, what should be the number one priority? The overwhelming answer is academic excellence. Uh-huh. That yep. is the overwhelming yep. answer that normal people give to that question. Yep. Teach our kids the things they need to know. Teach them to, you know, in Minnesota, our public schools are so terrible, Seth, you wouldn't even believe it. In Minnesota, only 36% of 11th graders can do math at grade level. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And grade level is nothing to write home about. 36%, 64%, two-thirds can't do math at right. grade level. Our, right. our public schools are completely failing in their basic mission of teaching our kids the things that they need to know. Only 50% of Minnesota public school children can read at grade level. 50%. Yeah, Half well. can't even read. Yeah. And, and, so, and so, you know, at the same time that they are, they are just... Uh, you know, turning our children out into the world ill-equipped to survive, what they are doing is is pounding liberal dogmas right. into their heads and convincing them that they are specially chosen to be agents of social change when they can't even add and subtract. And heaven forfend, if you do succeed in school, as we saw with the scandal coming out of Virginia, particularly Thomas Jefferson High School, and I believe now 20 other schools you're seeing, if you do succeed... We're going to hide it and suppress it. I mean, it, 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 it's you. really an incredible thing. It's an incredible thing. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it really is. It really, John, you're great. Thank you. Happy New Year. Didn't want to go through January uh, of the New Year without talking and checking in with you. Always appreciate your friendship, support, and uh, and time with us. Really do. Happy New Year to you, Seth. Thanks, John. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back.
If you are concerned with stock market volatility, why refi has an investment in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market. You can turn your monthly income on or off. You can compound it, whatever you like. And there's no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. Think about that. This is a secure collateralized portfolio that delivers a high fixed interest rate up to 10.25%. That's right, 10 and a quarter percent return. Why Refi is a due diligence approved firm. And you can learn more about them at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com. Or give them a call at 888-YREFI-34. 888-YREFI-34. That's investyrefi.com or 888-YREFI-34. I was um, mentioning with John uh, the... um, the book that was so darn um, impactful to the modern crew of educators, even if they haven't read it, their teachers have, in Changing the Notion of Education. It's a book from 1968 by a Marxist named Paulo Ferrer from Brazil called Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And it is about converting the teaching profession into a uh, politicizing uh, profession and a child recruitment Profession, and that is what dominates right now so many of the teacher schools. Go back to the interview I did about a week ago with Daniel Buck, if you want. Um, he talks about it. He wrote about it um, when he said, as I was studying for my master's degree in education at U Madison, Wisconsin, or sorry, University of Wisconsin Madison, uh, my program was batty. We made Black Lives Matter friendship bracelets. We passed around a popsicle stick to designate whose turn it was to talk while professors compelled us to discuss our life's traumas. We read poems through the lenses of Marxism and critical race theory in preparation for our students doing the same. Our final projects were acrostic poems or ironic rap videos. Remember, folks, this isn't high school. This isn't college. This is graduate school. This is for a master's degree in education. I remember my master's degree, and I'll tell you, we weren't making bracelets. And we weren't talking about our childhood traumas through the lenses of Marxism and critical race theory. He um, he writes, he went on to write, at the time I thought my experience was unique. Alas, what I came to discover was my program was mild compared with what current graduates must study. The Wisconsin Institute uh, for Law has reviewed the required coursework of 14 programs for teachers to be These programs produce about 80% of all teaching graduates. What they found was shocking. Worldview, building, and ideological manipulation take precedence over teacher preparation. On the syllabi, noticeably lacking are academic literature or manuals of classroom instruction. Instead, Hollywood movies like Freedom Writers, popular books like Jonathan Kozel's Letters to a Young Teacher, and propaganda like Anti-Racist Baby abound. That's Ibrahim Excuse me, that's Ibrahim Kendi from Boston University. This is the man who says that uh, present discrimination is the correct answer to past discrimination and the correct answer to future discrimination. This is the man who says and writes uh, colorblindness is a badge of racism. You imagine that, calling Martin Luther King a racist? as a professor of African-American studies, calling Martin Luther King a racist. That's what he is doing. In any event, uh, you think this stuff is um, isolated. It's not. It's not. 
Um, he writes, if there's practical training involved, it's likely to be about how to discuss LGBTQ plus issues with three-year-olds. That's the how-to stuff, right? Talk about methodology and um, a lot of us have thought for years that methodology was overemphasized over content, you know, give students one class, teaching students or professor or pro, uh, students training to go into the teaching profession, give them one class on how to and load them up on content, you know, make them smart, make them know their issues, make them know their field, make them know their, their topics. Um, but methodology um, has now not only trumped and triumphed its methodology on how to discuss things like LGBTQ and other issues with three-year-olds, not how to teach best practices on math and reading. And so we sit back and think about what I was discussing with you a few days ago, which were our, you know, awful, lousy, terrible scores on the nation's report card, the learning loss that we went through through COVID. It's part and parcel due to the school shutdowns, you bet. But it's also part and parcel that we're not teaching our students reading and math and history. We're teaching them LGBTQ plus issues. We'll be right back. Well, welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. I was talking to John Hinderocker. Is it easier to be on the host side of the microphone or the guest side of the microphone? I was on the guest side of the microphone on the Larry O'Connor show uh, yesterday. Larry O'Connor is a radio host and has a show on the Salem News Channel. SalemNewsChannel.com is where you can access it. And I had mentioned that I had written a piece, got a fair amount of attention, titled Anesthetizing Ourselves to Death on some new numbers that should have uh, the nation's headlines and our nation's hair on fire, but is making news nowhere. Uh, Larry picked up on it and uh, interviewed me and uh, thought we'd um, play you the interview. This is me being interviewed by Larry O'Connor last night on the Salem News Channel. And anesthetizing ourselves to death, written by Seth Liebson, host of the Seth Liebson Show, uh, part of the Salem radio family there, the Patriot KKNT in Arizona. Seth, thanks for joining us, and thanks for writing this column. Well, thanks for having me, and thanks for taking it as seriously as you are. I appreciate it. Well, you know, as I said, listen, I, I seemed okay. I, I always you know, said I'm, I'm with uh, uh, your libertarian conservatives who saw the war on drugs as being you know, not really the best way to go about getting our kids away from weed and what have you. So it's like, yeah, let, let people make the choices, even if it means having the freedom to make a choice that could ruin your life. But um, maybe we're starting to see the downside of that now. This is a remarkable set of numbers you've pointed out. Yeah, that's right. We have watched uh, illegal and dangerous drug use go up and up and up over the past uh, several years uh, without paying very much attention to it. And we hit a we hit a landmark or a high water mark, 44 year high, if you will, this past week. Everyone in this uh, business who analyzed this, who studied this, who worked on this knew that 1979 was our single worst year of illegal and dangerous drug use in America, with about 14.1% of Americans regularly using those drugs. Mm. We actually got it down substantially in the late 80s and early 90s when we took it seriously. We reduced it by 60%. That's an untold great story. Think about reducing any other harm, 60%, fatherlessness, you name it. And then we gave up. And then uh, not only did we give up, we started normalizing. We started changing the language. We started letting up on 
on the importance of uh, the messaging of prevention. And we got more into the business of kind of accommodating drug use. And as of last week, we hit that new 44-year high. We're now at 14.3%. We went from getting it down to 5.8 up to 14.3%. Wow. And today, 106,000 Americans a year are dying from these dangerous it drugs. sounds to me like what you're saying here is that the so-called failed war on drugs actually wasn't a failure. It actually was making was. inroads. It actually was making yeah. a difference. Can we define our terms here when you say illegal sure. and dangerous drugs? Because pot is pretty much legal in so many places in this country. Is pot use included in these numbers? Marijuana use is included in these numbers. And what's important to know about the marijuana use is it is being used much more regularly and at a much higher rate of potency. So back in 1979, 1980, you and I, I think, are roughly the same age back when we were in high school and college. The average potency of marijuana, the, the tetrahydrocannabinol, THC, the psychoactive ingredient, is about 3 to 5%. Today, if you go into a dispensary or if you buy your marijuana from um, a drug dealer, it's going to be at about 20%. The potency has gone up, but you can find potency as high as 80 and 90%. It's really quite a different drug than you and I knew in high school and college, Larry, So the, that our friends knew. So in other words, the Gen Xers, yeah, exactly, friends of mine, uh, uh, those guys that hung out on the Lodi lot in the back of the school. Yeah. Uh, Gen yeah. Xers and boomers who were like, sure, legalize pot. You know, I, 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 I did pot a bit when I was in college. It didn't hurt me. They're, they don't recognize that pot today is very different than pot back in the day. It's a much different drug. It's almost, it, it almost deserves a different name, huh. um, quite frankly. And if you look at a lot of the new teen violence that we're seeing, the new school shoot, the new uh, uh, rash of school shootings, you will see that in almost every one, from Uvalde to Stoneman Douglas, almost every one, the Gabby Gifford shooting here, it is involving use by young people using that high-potency marijuana. The idea that marijuana today is just going to give you Cheetos and Doritos is just not true. It's doing new things to the teen and adolescent brain. Part of it is activating violence. All right, so, but let's move on there because uh, we also move into the very dangerous drugs. Of course, again... Shot through my Gen X eyes, you know, there, there's pot, there's cocaine maybe, but you know, that heroin, that's the really nasty stuff, right? You don't right. want to touch that. Right. But, but when you talk about the opioid crisis that is so ubiquitous right. now, um, right. this, this is beyond dangerous and the numbers continue to grow. Yeah, it is the number one killer. The number one killer of young adults now is fentanyl. It's not COVID. It's not anything else. It is fentanyl. This is a crisis that, as I say, consider the numbers. Uh, about 80,000 people a year die on fentanyl, 106,000 drugs generally, illegal drugs generally. Think about that here in Washington, D.C. Think about that long, sad scar in the ground called the Vietnam Memorial Wall. It has about 58,000 names on it. it. took about 16 years to amass all those souls. We are now building, or the, we could be building the equivalent of two of those walls a year with drug overdose deaths. When we got drug use down to its low watermark in 1992, we were losing about 5,000 Americans a year. The country got bigger, of course. It grew by a third, but drug deaths increased by 2,000 percent. Yeah. And it's voluntary. This is a, sort of yeah. what I want to get to. I mean, obviously, we can sure. have a war on drugs and we can get to policy and we should get to laws and we should take this seriously. I do agree with that. But ultimately, something is happening within the conscience of our children and young adults right. where they are right. choosing to numb themselves. 
That's right. What's and that's going the on there, is so. the word we used and numb themselves is absolutely right. There is a teen mental health crisis. COVID exacerbated it, and we saw use going up throughout COVID, of course. But for many years, this has been building and building. And part of the industry of rehabilitation, treatment, psychoanalysis, you know, they have made it a behavioral health issue. They call it substance use or substance use disorder, as if there's no volition in this. That's part of the problem here, too. We used to talk about it as illegal drug use. Then the language changed to drug abuse. Then the language changed to substance abuse. Now it's just substance use or substance use disorder. I'm not saying there isn't such a thing as addiction, and there certainly is. And it's very sad and very dangerous, and we want to treat addiction. Of course we do. But addiction does have a behavioral beginning to it. The first shot is your choice. Second shot may be. The third shot may be. The fourth isn't. Fifth isn't for the addict. And not everyone becomes an addict, but too many do. And with this higher potency stuff, it's becoming even more addictive. Can I, can I say one word of course. on the libertarian impulse on this? Because I think we all have certain libertarian instincts. But when you look at what libertarian philosophy is, less government, less taxes, less regulation, please understand this isn't happening in a vacuum. As you legalize or normalize more of this drug use, you are increasing, highly increasing the costs of health care and the government at every level from not only law enforcement and ambulances and emergency department visits, but public health treatment for people who can't afford it. The costs of substance abuse use or dangerous drug use, as I call it, have skyrocketed as legalization has normalized it. It's kind of a libertarian nightmare, if you will. Yeah, and, and of course, that, that same instinct suggests that the solution to the problem is not going to be some big government program. Uh, and, and maybe it's criminalizing again, maybe it's not. I don't know. I mean, a lot of these drugs you're talking about are criminalized still, right? That's right. That's what, right. what is the role of government? What should smart politicians who really do want to make a difference on this, what should they be focusing on? Prevention, prevention, prevention. It's worked in almost every field. We reduce cigarette smoking in this country by 50% in our lifetime, Larry. It's a miraculous thing. We did it through serious prevention messaging. Everyone knows the Smokey the Bear. We have done it with Mothers Against Drunk Driving. What we didn't do is normalize and say all this behavior is okay and it's going to, you know, not harm anyone but yourselves. Yeah. When we got drug use down from 1979 to 1992, we did it through a lot of ways. Most of it was through messaging. Most of it was through the partnership uh, ads, like this is your brain on drugs. Right. Hollywood got in the game. Public leaders got in the game. And just saying, yeah, no. a drug czar that was famous. No one knows if we even have a drug czar today. Yeah, Seth uh, Liebson, it's a great point. And, and by the way, it's you, you raise cigarette issues. I dare to say yeah. that there are too many parents, even conservative parents, who, if pressed, they said, "Hey, if you knew your kid tried pot or you knew your kid tried cigarettes, what would concern you more?" I, I swear, I, I think the majority would say they'd be more worried about cigarettes. Right. I don't know. That's right. Because of the prevention messaging yeah. on cigarettes that we don't have on marijuana, it's an odd society that cares more about children's lungs than their brains. Don't you think, Larry? I would say so. Seth Leibson, host of The Seth Leibson Show, thank you for, again, writing this article. I commend it to everyone, and it's an issue that we'll continue to take up. More to come. You're watching. And that was Larry O'Connor at Salem News Channel. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Uh, just a, another small cultural note. This isn't uh, nearly as serious as the last uh, couple of topics, but I just couldn't uh, – I'm going to get Sam Stone in here in a few minutes and get to some other serious issues. I just couldn't let this go. This is a pet peeve of mine. Uh, Otis Volgari, uh, uh, I hate the vulgar crowd is, 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 is the old Latin phrase. There's a piece in the New York Times today by one of their cultural writers, Frank Broody. Um, saying Tom Cruise and the insanity of the Oscars. Did Tom Cruise give an honest-to-goodness performance in Top Gun Maverick? I missed it. Maybe I was blinded by his toothy gleam. And then he goes on to criticize Tom Cruise's uh, movie, Ma uh, Top Gun Maverick, as not worthy of being nominated for the uh, best movies of 2022, the Oscars, the Academy Awards. And you just got to look at this and, 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 and wonder if we really live in two totally different countries. It was a hell of a great movie. What did it make? $700 million, something like that. It goes on and on and on that, you know, it's just him strutting around. I mean, the guy made the whole movie, first of all, at a time, by the way, during COVID when people weren't supposed to be doing this kind of stuff. So just for fun, I went to uh, the New York Times to see what they said. Another article, what they said were the best movies of 2022. Uh, I heard of none of them. I heard of none of them. Truly. Petite, Amon, No Bears, Kimi, The Eternal Daughter, Happening, Decision to Leave, Expedient Content. I, I don't know. I, I don't even know if we're going to the same movie theaters. All right, Sam Stone coming up. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.